Hello and welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today is Fiona Passantino. Way back in BC, that's before COVID, Fiona was an old school comic artist, writer and video game designer. After getting serious with an MBA in leadership and 15 years in the corporate world in internal communications and engagement for some of the largest multinationals in Europe, Fiona wrote a few books and went out on her own in 2023. She is a culture, engagement and communications expert, helping teams and leaders engage, inspire and connect their teams. She's also a speaker, trainer, executive coach, podcaster, blogger and YouTuber and is the author of the Comic Books for Executives series. She has a weekly radio show on Den Haag 92FM on the future of work and she lives in The Hague with her family. Our discussion in this podcast is on lessons drawn from mythology and post-COVID communication in the context of leadership. Thank you for joining us and supporting the podcast, but enough from me, I'll hand over to Fiona. Thanks, Eric. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very honoured. And uh, I know this isn't your standard uh, format, so thanks again for this. Now I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So my name is Fiona Passantino. Um, I'm actually based in The Hague in the Netherlands, and I am a culture engagement and communication specialist. And this means that I work with leaders, I work with small groups and uh, companies to try to go for small cultural shifts over time that can lead up to business transformation. And I am the author of the comic book for executives. There's one on communication. There's one on engagement. And this topic that we have now comes from that book on communication. So basically, the way I like to frame this is after COVID, we really find ourselves disconnected, disengaged, uninspired. Our engagement is quite low some of the lowest rates in about 20 years. Um, Right now, we're looking at 18% of us are disengaged, actively disengaged, and we only have a 34% active engagement. That's from Gallup 2022. And there's no indication that these numbers are going to be turning around. So why is it? Why are we so much more um, disengaged, disenchanted at our workplace than we were even during peak COVID in in the pandemic when we were all in lockdown? And our environment at work is often one of this kind of jabbering media that gives us the illusion of connection and inspiration. Um, And our workplaces give us the illusion of belonging to an extended family or tribe. But in fact, we're finding out that this is having an impact on our own uh, well-being because it's only an illusion. But it is our human ability to be the signal in the noise amidst the noise in this landscape both our physical landscape and our media landscape. And as our world becomes even more complex and distracting, we need to draw on these very ancient skills of the storyteller and the epic to deliver the information, uh, to inspire, align, and remind us of, of who we are. That, um, that's, that's some good scene setting. I, I would ask you the uh, illusion that we're um, as connected as we could be as we're coming out of COVID-19. Do you think leaders, generally speaking, I'm not asking you to pick a specific leader, obviously, that the the leadership across organisations is not as across this as they could be? And if the answer to that is yes, why do you think that is? They're not as, I, I didn't hear the word. Sorry, um, as connected with what's happening here. So this disengagement, do you think it's being missed 
um, not necessarily on purpose or are people ignoring this just to get on and, and get on with the business of running your organization? Yeah, I think it's uh, just a less of a priority. I think communication needs to be a leader's top priority. And often leaders are people who are really, really good at their jobs and they're promoted and they didn't necessarily go to manager school, which is a totally different skill set. You can be great at your job, but are you a great leader? It takes a totally different mindset and skill set and intentionality. And if we go back in time, so back to, let's say, 42,000 BC, um, a storyteller in those days, this was somebody that had that that exact skill set and delivered with intentionality because that was that was her job. That was her function in the tribe. And she would tell a story that has been told over hundreds and thousands of years with just, you know, slight variations over time. And usually these stories uh, had a hero um a quest to overcome an impossible challenge. Uh, I know in in your uh, in in Australia there's some uh, absolutely fantastic uh, dream epics um, where the hero would go into his own dream and uh, um, and have an endless sleep and uh, emerge uh, uh, out again and in again into a dream within a dream cycle. Fascinating stuff. But that's a hero story too. And. It, the storyteller of old had this ability to hold everybody's attention uh, with the mastery of just a very few simple tools, uh, some repetition, simplicity, and the use of silence. And I'll get into that later. And wrapped in these stories are lessons that the tribe needs to learn in order to survive. Lessons like be loyal to the tribe. Uh, listen to your parents. Um, don't listen to scary witches or scary monsters if they promise you things that are not realistic. But these are all things that we need to survive, but they're wrapped in this story. And that's why we remember them and uh, um, stick to the lessons that they, that they teach us. And an epic is the story of a human born kind of at the edge between the real world and the magical world. And something compels this hero to pass through into this magical uh, realm and take on a quest, a person to find, a dragon to slay, whatever it is. And he passes into this other world and experiences a, a fantastical journey where his bravery is tested, his loyalty and his ability to sacrifice. He will have allies that he gathers along the way some magical tools maybe, and face this enormous challenge, uh, be victorious, and uh, return to the tribe, pass back through the membrane into the real world and return to his tribe, uh, bearing the gifts of um, the fruits of victory and also these lessons uh, to um, inspire and uh, um, uh, educate his tribe with new knowledge. And so every single civilization in mankind from Maori to Mapuche, from Hindu to Hawaiian, from the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Indians, they they had an epic stories where they used this very, very remarkably similar format uh, across all civilizations. And the purpose is to entertain, inform, inspire, and align. And this is the same purpose also across all cultures. And even some of the um, the, the foes or the villains or the archetypes are the same. You, you have the great flood, which comes back 
uh, in the Yoruba or in uh, biblical stories, or you'll have the wicked uh, stepmother <laughs> who comes back uh, a lot. This must have been a thing. Uh, we see that in Aztec uh, stories. We see that in Chinese stories. We see that in Native American stories alike. So there are these common elephant uh, uh, elements, not elephants, that bind us all and make us human. And this is something that we can all draw from. So things are a little different today, right? Uh, we, <laughs> Our teams are are our tribes now and our offices are our longhouses uh, and this is again this this kind of illusion of this is our tribal being and our stories are not really these epic stories they're more about digital transformation or artificial intelligence or big data um, they're, they're very intricate things they're very abstract and data driven let's say and these processes they're very difficult to understand, but they also require near immediate understanding and rapid implementation in order to function in today's workplace. So we need some higher level storytelling skills to make these things understood and make them interesting and, and memorable so we understand why we're, we're learning to be agile or why we're uh, uh, switching to a new CRM. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask uh, one thing that, that stands out in what you've just said to me is this idea of the why and in the story there has to be the why why is the hero going on the journey why is the wicked stepmother or wicked stepfather whoever it is why are they doing what they do and it it gives some context to what it is that you're listening to and it, everything you're saying resonates with me I had no uh, clue that there was so much cross-cultural similarity when it comes to the storytelling and the archetypes and so on. Do you, do you think, uh, and, and this is this is a more meta question, but it's worth asking here, particularly as leaders have to draw from and look at the big picture and then sort of scale down to a lot of detail. Do you think we're moving away from this because of the technologies that we're using to create an illusion of storytelling and what the benefits are or um, is it too complicated to go down this pathway because we're so rushed in current society that the the process of the storytelling is uh, too slow to keep up with um, current requirements in in our world of work? Well, what's your view on that? I think you're exactly right. I think we've gone to a more is more mentality. We we sort of we have so much information coming at us in our media landscape, both in our private lives and in our working lives, that we've really just become overloaded and we become addicted to this overload. And when our brains are overloaded, we can't take in any more information. So we have, again, this illusion of massive knowledge transfer. But in fact, how much of a keynote do you remember just one day later or one hour later? If you can remember one thing or one funny anecdote, it's a lot. Uh, I think the average person sees um, something like by a factor of a thousand uh, times more images in one day than they used to in an entire lifetime, uh, maybe 200 years ago before the invention of the, photo, uh, the, the camera. So we are just swimming in information and learning how to use these epic storytelling tips will slow us down a little bit and get that knowledge transfer in, reduce the amount of actual stuff to tell, but make sure that it lands and it's memorable. So 
if you think about the transfer of knowledge and information from one human to another, it's not as simple as just taking a Thunderbolt cable and right clicking and you zap. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice, right? <laughs> uh, so we don't connect two brains. We can't download information, right? Um, this kind of fact in a vacuum that can feed a, a chat bot, you know, especially our, our new ones today, but it's meaningless and quickly forgotten in the human brain uh, because humans are hardwired to relate to and engage with storytelling. Uh, when we hear a story, our brains light up uh, in the same way as if we're having an actual experience that the brain functionality and what you know, cortexes light up, doesn't differentiate between a physical experience and a heard or imagined experience. And we feel this physiological arousal when we hear a story. And this stimulus actually stays with us after the story is is no longer being told. And when we are connected emotionally with uh, the story, that's when we're at the most focused, the most receptive to new information. Our engagement goes up, our satisfaction goes up, our our feelings of connection uh, go up, our loneliness goes down, we have more motivation, we feel more camaraderie with our team members, and this is a positive learning cycle. So stories, by definition, they convey emotion. And emotions wrap around a fact like a bun around a hot dog uh, and that fuses it into our long-term memories when we feel emotion about a fact it will go straight into our deep memories and we're also able to access those memories easily because the emotions are there to be the signal to the brain to find them so if you ever watched a grandma tell a story to a little child um and she'll tell you know, a slow moving story that repeats itself all the time and the child is just spellbound. And then you think of your own story you tell the child and you're babbling with full of facts and they don't care, they're, 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 they're wandering off because this grandma uses um, these, these tactics and, then, and we're stuck in our kind of you know, high tech media landscape. I was yeah. I was just going to add there the the emotional connection to the story that you feel makes it resonate more in your mind. I I, I can't disagree with that. And in fact, and, and this is drawing back to some memories of conferences that I've attended. The panel sessions or the sessions that stick out the most for me in the the myriad of different conferences that I've been to, and you're probably the same is the individual that use some kind of storytelling technique to get you into the topic area and then get you connected and that everything post that shared story or that shared incident, you may not remember as well, but you remember how the that session made you feel about a particular topic area. And I I have a feeling it's not that easy to do because if we were all good at the storytelling thing you wouldn't do what you're doing and you'd be doing something else so before we get into and and you alluded to this before and I think it's worth exploring in a lot more detail some tips around storytelling those tools as you've phrased it to me before but I'd, I'd like to get some sense from you before we go there about why is it that we're not as good at storytelling as we could be and is it something that we put up as a natural resistance to it or we've lost the art or somewhere in between? You know, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think we've become enchanted with our technology. Uh, 
Right. And our addiction to more is more. But, and I, I also don't think we learn this at school. I think we learn mathematics, we learn writing, we learn languages, but we don't necessarily learn the art of storytelling in the classic sense. We might read the epics, we might read the Iliad, the Odyssey, Mahabharata, but we wouldn't necessarily know how to retell it um, or how to engage with it in a way that people might have three, 400 years ago, because those were the tools that you needed. It was an oral tradition. People were not running around with phones, so you had to talk to each other. <laughs> Imagine how awful you had to actually be physically present with another human being in a room and convey information from one human to another orally. And people were much more used to it. And now we're just out of the habit of talking <laughs> to each other. I couldn't disagree with that. I think as we advance in the way that we communicate, you lose some things. And I think that art form has been lost. I, I, I can't say hand on heart. And um, you alluded to before about um, trying to connect with these things to, to get some better outcomes that I, I have, I have the feeling that people will circle around to this, this capability, the storytelling capability when it's needed. And if it's never needed, it's something you're not particularly worried about. And the ironic thing is maybe way back in the day, you said 42,000 years ago, however long ago it really was, it could be longer than that. It could be shorter than that. But what I'm trying to get to here is that not everyone was a storyteller. And so this craft was unique amongst some people. And maybe that's, the maintenance of that happens for a particular reason. Again, I have no no research to back me on this. It's just the gut impression that I get that some people will seek this out because they want to improve how they connect with others and they see some benefit to doing it. And it's just unfortunate that beyond Hollywood or beyond um, uh, you know your TV cartoons or whatever it is that you're watching to get your stories that there are elements of storytelling in there. We're just not aware of them because we don't get formally trained in them as an, as a critical part of the communication process. And I, I would ask you this because you are an expert in this area. Do you think there's a fear from people of, of becoming the storyteller because they don't want to get it wrong? Like they think there's, there's a right process here and that if they engage in it and do it wrong, that there's, a potential um, a negative impact for them as as a as a person in the world of work. Well, sure, we see this at work all the time. Uh, we'll have leaders giving uh, talks, and they'll come with PowerPoint slides that are full of text, and they will often turn their back to the audience and simply read off <laughs> the PowerPoint. That's nobody can read anyway because it's so jammed with text or have these you know enormous graphics on them and and just sort of read it off monotone what's written on the screen i mean we can all read i've i've done all my own reading since i was in the 5th grade or maybe earlier and somehow it's the higher up you go in in a hierarchy the skills sometimes get less and less there are some excellent exceptions. So uh, some, sometimes once you get to the very, very highest levels, then these people do have 
extensive media training and they can they can talk on their feet uh, very, very quickly. And it's funny because you asked a question earlier about uh, the status of uh, the storytellers in the past. Well, this was a very high level uh, person, the storytellers, a shaman, it was a chief. You had the, the basket weavers and the pottery makers. They were not the storytellers. You'd have these almost magical people, you know, with very high levels of authority, like the CEOs of today, who have these skills and, and also had that function in the tribe. Uh, so in that sense, there is a real parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I can see what that parallel is. And um this segues quite nicely into these tips that you alluded to before your your storytelling toolkit if i might be so bold so could you walk us through what those tips are and why they're important yeah absolutely so i have five tips i mean there are more but uh five was all we could fit into today um i start with tip one is go big an epic is a big story it's taking our day-to-day -day struggles, our day-to-day -day learnings, and making them heroic, large. Uh, because we're going large, we connect with it. Because an epic is this ageless story of the of the human born at the edge of of, uh, of magical and normal. Um, we can jump into that, even if we're talking about something, you know, like a transition to agile. If we make it into a, a hero story, we can jump into that role because we have hero stories all the time. You know, Star Wars or you know, any of these, any movie will draw from the hero story. So it's a format that we understand. We we can suspend our disbelief because we can slip right into it. And even when you're transferring knowledge about a, an office process, there is an element of heroism in it and big, the big story. Um, it doesn't have to be a life or death thing. Uh, it, you can make it also funny in that way. But these are ways of kind of getting us to stand behind what it is we're doing. This is a challenge that's been given to us. We have these tools, these magical tools. We have allies to help us. We have tests for our bravery, our courage. We're going to be challenged beyond our belief. And this can be said about the transformation to Agile. I've, I've, I've seen that three, four times in my life. It can be remarkably challenging. And if, but you're, if you're driven on a quest rather than just a thing you have to do at work, it makes a really big difference. And when you're communicating why you have to do this and what you have to do, using those big terms, that using that big language uh, is a way to get us to go towards that goal in a very different mindset and a victory mindset as well and have a little bit of fun with it too it's kind of fun to be a hero marching down to a new crm you know rather than like oh god you know another thing we have to do to you know so big stories they inspire uh they connect they they make a team feel like a team. We have a united common goal. We have a common enemy. Uh, sometimes the enemy is IT, but but there you go. And then we have to work together to rise up to this challenge and we have to make some sacrifices. Um, and then the second tip goes right along with that, which is go small. So 
it sounds very counterintuitive, go big, okay, but then go small. Going small just means that you focus on the tiny everyday stories of the average person doing the average thing. And this is a very powerful way to connect us to that big epic story. Here's your big challenge, your big epic, but we're all just very small people and we're, we have these very small stories to tell. So when you're talking about very abstract things like brand values or new regulations, changes, new ways of working, uh, telling this in a very small way, one person, what, is, what does the impact have on one person when they try to do one process in a very, very tiny way? Instead of making it very, very abstract and blown out, it's just here's one person, this is how the CRM is going to affect this one process, and this is what this one outcome is going to be for Joe in accounting, let's say. You make it about a very small story. And a great case study of this was during the pandemic. Uh, I was working for the Dutch um, National Post. And during the pandemic, the deliverers were the only ones out on the street. They were the ones bringing us our food and our medicines and our diapers and our, you know, Netflix uh, <laughs> merch and whatever else. And so we all had to stay indoors and they were the ones risking their lives delivering this stuff. So these were very small stories, very average people who were suddenly placed into this hero role. And they, we actually used this story to make every postal delivery a hero. And it was a very, very well-received marketing campaign, very human, um, very real. And it was this combination of the small story being told, one postal deliverer making his rounds, uh, helping people who need help with their medications or whatever, um, and bringing teddy bears to children, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yet a very big epic story. This is a hero risking his life. Uh, there's an invisible enemy, you know, out there and we're being challenged. So this is a, this is a perfect example, a case study of the combination of the very big and the very small. And it was one of the most successful campaigns uh, that they had. And I mean, the pandemic was a weird moment in our history, but it's not going to be the, the last um, big thing that's going to happen to us, I can be sure. And then tip number three is using metaphor. And metaphor is a really, really powerful tool that we use all the time, but we don't really use it with intentionality. Uh, the word is from the Greek metapheron, which literally means carrying something somewhere new. So you take an old familiar thing uh, that carries us into a new place. And we, we understand what the old thing is, and that carries us into a new understanding. So take a desktop on your computer, for example. You see a little trash can there. You see little folders there. You see little files there. These are metaphors. We know what a trash can is because we have them in our house. And so that image of a trash can will carry us into this new place of a desktop where you put files to be deleted. Now, they could have chosen anything they wanted, to, but they chose a trash can because we don't have to think twice about it. Oh, trash can, I know what to do. You drag this stuff in there and it goes away. But it's because of the metaphor, it carries us into this new world of, of the computer. Same thing with like a shopping cart. When we do e-commerce, we understand what a shopping cart is because it's a physical thing. Uh, so metaphors, when we use them, um, gives us a way to organize, structure the information. Our brains 
can make these comparisons and immediately start funneling the information uh, where it needs to go. And one great example of this is a meme. A meme is a metaphor machine. Uh, it carries us into this unexpected new place uh, on the backs of what we already know. And it makes us laugh, it makes us wiser, it makes us share. Uh, and it's immediately understandable. It's emotionally charged. And so we spread them. And that's why we love them. And that's why they're, they're really, really effective. So using metaphor just rocket fuels corporate storytelling. We use it when we talk about an Achilles heel, uh, which is about a fatal hidden weakness in a, in a let's say, otherwise super program. Uh, we use a labyrinth um, to describe something that's really difficult to understand. Um, we use a Trojan horse uh, to talk about uh, a dangerous uh, software. Um, um, uh, um, what do you call them? <laughs> Sorry, I'm blanking on the word. I have a virus. Thanks. Uh, and these tales, you know, we understand what a Trojan horse is because we all read the Odyssey. We understand that this is something dangerous to avoid. And so we then intuitively understand what this virus will do to us. The metaphor element of those first three tips that really hit home for me because um, again, when you interact with the world around you, you're not thinking. And in any uh, and the the computer, the technology example is a good one where you've got your laptop, you're working on files, and you just see the trash can, however it, it's done up. But at its most basic, you know, bad files, crap you don't want on your computer goes there it's just done intuitively when you're online shopping all of you know all all of um all the interactions you have with something you're buying merch or whatever it is you see the go to your cart that's where you're putting all your things that you want to purchase and it just you make those connections i think you do that um subconsciously that that um that last example about memes and this is just the nature of, of doing these podcasts i had a guest on uh, very recently, he talked a bit about using memes in his workplace to lighten up the workplace and to share jokes and to share something of meaning and just to get people's brain matter clicking over, not necessarily on the work. And it's an interesting tactic. I'd never heard of it before. Um, he also mentioned that they had the word of the day and the, the challenge was how many times in a day could you put a particular word into a sentence um, through the day to get the most use of that word. And I understand what you mean now. I, I Just one question now around um, metaphor, The um, when using it well, like an Achilles heel, you know that there's some catastrophic problem that you've got to take care of. But can the use of metaphor go over people's heads? Like can people just not understand what's at the core of that metaphor and what's the danger of that for the the storyteller in that process. Yeah, that's a great point. It has to be something that we all know and understand. And this is very culturally based, by the way. Um, we in the West are very fluid with our use of Greek, Roman, Latin, biblical references. Uh, but does this mean the same thing to somebody in Asia or, or in South America? There are, you know, similar references there too. So, um, Check your culture, I would say. Uh, make sure the audience that you're speaking to would have a similar frame of reference. You know, do a little homework about the audience um, because these, these things do vary indeed.
Yeah, that that was um that was something that I wanted to ask later, but I, I, now that we're talking about it now, it's worth asking now that um, culturally speaking, making assumptions about how you're using metaphor could be catastrophic to what you're trying to do, not because you want to uh, sync the story you're trying to tell, but if if there's no shared understanding of the metaphor, people will go, why the hell did he say that? Or what what does that necessarily mean for me? And uh, it's, it's definitely a, uh, for those that are working in leadership roles in another cultural setting, and I don't mean another business, but another country, getting across what that means is something you need to do very quickly if you're going to be even relevant to the workforce that you're working in. Because I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my perception is if you're going to work in another cultural setting, giving those workers the respect of understanding the cultural context in which you're working, you'll get found out real quick if it's if you're not doing it with the right intentionality. You use that word quite a bit and that that makes sense to me that if you're not in the game and understanding where you work and, and that place, that any amount of storytelling from a, a, from your cultural perspective just won't make a lot of sense to the audience if they have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. That makes sense. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's about respect and, and knowing your audience. Yeah. If, and very important part of communication. So um, can we keep going with the tips? So what would be the next tip after metaphor? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So tip four is repeat. So repetition, this is an essential part of a short story or an epic in poetry and to succeed. So repetition creates predictability, a cadence, a cycle. Repetition highlights and emphasizes important points in a story. Repetition facilitates the narrator's memory and makes the poem or the story easier to remember and, and spit back up again. Repetition creates rhythmic patterns that make the story easier to listen to and, and remember, kind of like music. So music affects our brain differently than text music binds with our emotions. So you see how that works. Um, but many of the epics, so like the Iliad, the Odyssey, or, or Mahabharata, Book of Change, uh, across cultures, they all started as oral storytelling traditions. So long before writing was invented, they were telling these same stories. And traveling storytellers would go from one town to the next and repeat these stories um, as they go, and, and then this would then adapt and change um, with every destination. But they used this repetition tool so they would remember the details themselves. And because it was easy for them to remember, it was also easy for the listeners to remember. So that's why we have these stories with us still, because, I mean, these stories are ancient. You know, the, the Cinderella story is, is, you know, the... Uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, these are these are ancient, ancient stories. They have been retold so many times, and they are pretty much the same, you know, uh, even over all these years, because this use of repetition, um, you'll, you'll have three little pigs where, you know, the wolf will go to one house and tells the same story, and then go to the next house, and the same, you know what's coming, right? Because it's you, that cycle of repetition, you know what the wolf is going to say, you know what the, you know, pigs are going to say, and then the, the wolf goes to the last house, and there's that one little variation, the house is made of brick and not straw, and we weren't 
expecting this, but we knew everything else. So we could be very, very focused on that one little difference because of the use of repetition that got us to that point. And then it also builds. So when you repeat, 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 it kind of builds the uh, engagement and, and focus. Um, and then you're very much more attentive to, to details. So this was, I don't know if this was an accidental um, uh, evolution, but it certainly is uh, extremely effective. And then the final tip is silence, the use of silence. Um, we tend to jabber, jabber, jabber and fill up the air with space and and don't take a breath, I, particularly in my country, in the United States, where we're, we're very fast talkers. And we need silence to allow things to land and to take root. So it's sort of the dark twin sister of speech. So speech will babble on, but silence is there, this equal and opposite part of speech to allow that time for reflection, allow the message to kind of echo in the chamber of the mind, connect with the emotions. You need time for a story to connect with emotions and memory centers. And then you can also start thinking about what is being said. So long ago, Albert Einstein explained to us that empty space isn't nothing. So the physical world around us, we, we know, we understand all the matter and the energy that we observe in our physical universe is actually only a very small part of the total mass of the universe. I think we understand that something like 68% of the universe is dark energy, dark matter. We don't even understand what it is, but we know it's there. We can't measure it, but we know that it profoundly impacts the behavior of the physical realm. So this is this dark matter is, is the, the dark uh, um, physical matter, let's say, is is twenty seven percent of our world that we know about. Uh, we know that it's immeasurably powerful, but we don't know how. We don't know what it is even. So we just know that we can adapt this way of looking at things when we communicate, and we have to get over our fear of the void. So when you're standing up up there giving a keynote. It's a very uncomfortable thing to allow a moment to tick by or a second to give yourself a moment to gather your thoughts. It makes the speaker uncomfortable. It makes the audience uncomfortable. But just like the law of supply and demand, the fewer words that are used, the higher the demand for those words. So the higher value of each word, if there's fewer of them <laughs> and more of the, of, of the negative space. So mastery of this tool is, is really very, very hard, and it takes a great deal of, of patience and a little bit of, um, yeah, repetition. You have to do it over and over again. It takes a bit of confidence to know that it's a tool that you can use that's really, really effective. Uh, you'll notice the audience kind of shift in their chairs, maybe laugh nervously, and no speaker likes that. But when you speak next, they're right there with you. Uh, there's some people who are really, really good at this, like Obama is, is, uh, is a master of this. He's really long pauses in his speeches, sometimes just absurdly long. <laughs> but it really worked. He's one of the best speakers that I 
can remember. And, uh, and it's also why some of these grandmas, these, you know, abuelas can tell the story to their kids because they have command of this tool of silence. And even when the moments tick by and nothing is said, nobody seems to care. You know, the kids are still listening. They're not, you know, off with their phones. This is dark energy at work. This is this dark matter making uh, making its impact on the the physical world. So many questions from the that that last tip the the use of silence. Yeah, there are some people that use that break in their in in their presentations. I've I've seen this in some TED talks. I've seen this in some podcasters, and I've seen it on YouTube where someone. And some speakers will flag it so that you know it's coming and others just do it as part of their their rhythm. So someone, um, won't get into names obviously, but I like when people go, have a think about what I've just said. And they'll, they'll give the audience a chance not to be uncomfortable and go, oh, he's asking me to think about what he's just said or what she's just said. And you think and, and you engage with that topic. And as the speaker continues, that that speaker has given you a context for what's coming next or has asked you to draw on part of your thinking that you might necessarily not have done through the speech. And yeah, I think it takes um, from coming from someone who's a um, an introverted heart that it's a really difficult skill to master because I think the speaker, and this is a speaker's thing, um, and I'm only speaking for my tribe as in those introverts in the world, that if you're not talking or you think the audience is uncomfortable it can be earth shattering to your presentation because you think people aren't engaged and one thing that I've learned in a career that I've done many things like all of us have done that in an audience um, people will absorb the information you're relaying in different ways they're not all sitting there thinking about what you're saying in the same way but I, I like the idea that uh if you can master this, you get people in. And the example of someone who has gravitas, that authority in the tribe, amongst your family, in the workplace, that people hang off your words is because they're waiting for that nugget of wisdom to come along or that tip that helps them to do something. And so um, I would ask you before we go on to maybe bringing this together in a, in a case study format around the pandemic, I'd ask you this, um, was it always the most respected or, or elder in a tribe or in a community that was the best storyteller because they had that life experience or could it be very young storytellers that could, could get you there? And is do, and that's part one of the question. Then part two do we give more credence to our elders in our tribes because they've been there and they've lived life versus let's say you're faced with a 15 or 20 year old speaker who's not lived maybe as much life as you that you don't put as much credence into their story because they're too young to have known any better. I know that's a bias for older listeners, but does it, does some of that play into this? You know, um, that's a great point. I I had not um, I hadn't thought of that in that way, uh, and you're ca catching me. I'm not an anthropologist, so I I don't know whether all storytellers were elders. I suspect they were, 
because it takes so long to develop these skills, number one, and number two, it was a very different respect structure uh, in these tribal societies where elders were really had the highest status in the society and they were the ones that were given these um, more magical roles, these these the shamanesque roles, leadership roles. And we don't have any evidence of young storytellers in in our understanding of historical societies, we they very well might have had apprentices, people learning the trade, you know, young religious scholars who um, were studying the craft. We, we don't really know, um, but we do know the kind of archetype, old person, uh, shaman, storyteller, uh, mythical leader, religious leader who had this role. We do know that this was the person that was celebrated and written down on the on the the sides of tombs and so on. I really like what you said about flagging silence. I I, I also really love that you know that um, that visual that you have. Uh, we inoculate our audience in advance when we do this. We sort of remove the uh, that uncomfortable seat twitching feeling of oh God. The speaker's forgotten what they're, what they're saying. Yeah, you like, like inviting them in, and I like yeah. that when a speaker does that. They're like, you know, you have someone with authority sitting in in a room or up on a on a podium, and and maybe, and this this is again, I'm thinking out loud here because you've got my brain working over time with this. Is when we go to a conference, we put the speaker right up the front on a podium, sometimes above the rest of the audience, and that. Mm -hmm that creates a distance and a I'm the expert or I'm the person with the the information you want and you're going to listen to what I have to say whereas I think the really good um, speakers that understand understand this craft of telling the story at least getting you on board is to say it doesn't matter what physical setup we've got here we need to share the discussion and here is how I'm going to do it and I think the the really really good storytellers, um, the the infrastructure of where they're speaking isn't an issue. But uh, remember that when you're in, I remember that when you're in an audience, you're there to listen to that other person, and so you have expectations. You potentially don't want to say anything out of school or potentially shift uneasily in the chair. And I, I think I've been in an audience where I've done that where maybe the silence has been uncomfortable and you're going, oh, where is this going? I really like it when someone gives you some direction or gives you permission to relax into the story or potentially wants your feedback because I've also been in a situation and you've probably experienced this too where the speaker invites you to say something. So they might say, well, what's your thoughts on this? And they'll look at the audience looking for someone to... Um, uh, to say something or, or give a uh, an opinion about an issue. Now, uh, I think it's the extroverts in that room that will be the ones that will put the hand up or blurt something out so that the speaker can continue or, or craft their story around their audience. But I, yeah, it is a skill, and I don't think you can learn it without some life experience. But to, to end my point here, because I'm, I'm really fascinated with what you're saying here, I think what we lose, though, in the world of work is once um, people hit a certain age bracket in the world of work and they are uh, metaphorically and in reality the elders in that organisation, we don't necessarily respect 
their knowledge, skills and experience to the degree that we could, nor do we, I think, access that well in the world of work. And you only have to look at research that talks about the um, the the potential of that older workforce in all of our modern societies that is underutilized. And it, it has it's had me thinking for a long time, why is it that at a certain point you lose gravitas in the world of work when you when you get a few more gray hairs or you get older, you're maybe not as relevant. You lose that connection. And I, I think it's um it's to our detriment that that happens where that's that's where the stories are. The people that have been in the world of work for 40 or 50 years and can tell you, look, what you're going through is not something we haven't seen before. Here's how I dealt with it. We don't tend to connect that way. Does that is that something you see yeah. in your travels? Absolutely. And I think this is a shift that's happened with this fantastic explosion of our technology. We've become so enamored of our new and the change and the new technology, the new thing and and the speed at which our lives have to go, that we've just left our older generation in the dust. And we just don't value their way of seeing the world because we're so focused on the new or on the tomorrow, on the future, on these cool new gadgets that we're uh, inventing and, and willy-nilly implementing without thinking about like, what are we doing here? <laughs> I mean, just look what's happening with AI right now. And this, this kind of desperate letter uh, to put a moratorium on all, because we just were unleashing this monster that nobody can, understand where it's going to go and so i i wonder whether this is again this lack of looking backwards and thinking about what we're actually doing and what the consequences will be later on and this is an older person's way of looking at something and a young person might look at it like oh it's so cool let's go for it you know we got to go for it and if we don't someone else will and that's true all of these things are true but going for it without thinking about what it is we're doing and what the consequences could be. That is an older person's way of looking at things that are changing, you know? So, and this is just to, you know, to wrap up uh, these crises that we have, whether they're our own making (laughs) or whether they're going to be happening to us, they're going to be more common. First of all, because we're inventing things that are dangerous more and more dangerous now and also because what's happening to the world is getting more and more dangerous because of our actions this kind of quick development not thinking about the consequences is going to create new crises like the pandemic bigger ones environmental crises uh, floods fires droughts insects frogs i don't we don't even know more pandemics certainly so we're going to need these tools in the future to really unite to to convey information to save our lives number one um and to unite us to join us to give us courage to give us hope to get us to work together uh we're going to have to work together as a as a globe in the future not just as a country not just as a team not just as a company and we need this connection and inspiration, this conveyance of the why behind the what to conquer these things, uh, to survive as a species. And we don't know what's going to come, but I think these storytelling tools is going to be a big part of what's going to keep us alive, just like 
uh, the storytellers of old. And what I usually like to do with these kinds of things is if you go out at night, and I'm sure where you live, you have real stars, but if you go out at night and you look up, what do you see up there? Do you see the story of enterprise service management? Do you see uh, the latest CRM? Or do you see Orion? Do you see the scorpion? Do you see Aquila, the ancient falcon of Egypt? What do you see when you look in the sky? These constellations are the result of our epics, and they're speaking to us across the millennia. They're whispering to us. They're reminding us who we are and, and what we're here to do, that we are living heroes in our own time, that we have our own epic journeys that we're on. And so I always like to go outside, look up if, if <laughs> the city lights aren't too much, and just he hear what they're saying, because this is really... This is the storytelling that is still still talking to us. And we as humans, we still need this. We need the stars. We need the, the fire and the cave and the safety and the warmth of our tribes. And we need these stories to, to pull us through into our next challenges and to unite us as, as humans and to understand what the dangers are. And so it's this, this interplay between fact, knowledge transfer, and myth that is really going to help us into the future uh, that's a wonderful way to end the podcast fiona i'll be uh firing up star wars when we get off the, <laughs> the call here to go to an epic oh of, what of, a of... great example of <laughs> epic storytelling thank you so much can i just end by saying that uh this is um this article is uh, in full uh on postcovidhandbook.com and and it's based on one of the books. So this is the um, post-COVID handbook for uh, communication. Uh, engagement is the second edition. But if you're interested in this, have a look at um, postcovidhandbook.com. And all of these blogs are there as well as a, a podcast as well where uh, these kinds of topics. I'll make sure to put that in the podcast description. Thanks That's again, great. Fiona. Thank you so much, Eric. I really enjoyed this a lot. That concludes the podcast. I'd like to thank Fiona for her time and insights around the critical need for communication and storytelling for our leaders. As always, thank you for your support for the podcast. Please drop a like or subscribe to help us grow the channel. Our next podcast drops on the 24th of July and features a discussion of the leadership pathway of Bell Binder, the Managing Director of Left Field. Have a great day, rest of your week, and we'll catch you all on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.